Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another Blu-ray Spotlight. We're covering the month of June. All the extraordinary Blu-ray releases that are keeping you company during this quarantine season. Not that many people are actually observing it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's another story. (laughs) That's right. Life might be blue for some of you, but uh, there's... There's blue ray to lift your spirits. Yeah, there are rays of hope, especially <laughs> on the on the blue horizon. Yeah. Well, we're just putting one foot in front of the other and trying to do the best we can with all this, and that's about all we can do. So uh there we have it. But uh yeah, some pretty good stuff. Uh I'm constantly surprised at that they're able to keep pumping out the new releases uh the uh yeah the new releases not new titles i should say that's that's been the interesting thing for me with all this is we're not getting inundated with a lot of newer stuff which is kind of okay with me because i prefer the classic titles (laughs) yeah 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 me too me too so we're doing this through skype you're you're wearing a mask right I am. Can you tell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't want to get anything to come through the microphone there. So it's, right. Oh yeah. Okay. It's, uh, and uh, lots of social. You know, I'm socially distant from the microphone too. I wanted to make sure I was six feet away. Yeah, so. you never know what you can catch from yourself. So just. Uh... <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah. Well, let's start things off with June second, uh, the beginning of the month. And this is one that's been issued before on Blu-ray a couple of years ago, but it was just basically a duplication of what had already previously been released on DVD. And that's uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross, which has been released by Shout Select, as uh, by Shout Factory, rather, as one of their Shout Select titles. Mm. And they've really gone all out for all of us who are fans of Glengarry Glenn Ross, and really – who isn't if you're a serious film fan? Uh, there's a new 4K transfer from the original camera negative. There is a new conversation with director James Foley. New God Bless Ricky Roma. Actor Joe Montagna remembers working with David Mamet. Audio commentary with James Foley. ABC Always Be Closing featurette. Magic Time, a tribute to Jack Lemon. And here's the uh, one of the things that, that – really is worth mentioning and we've talked about this on the show before uh the other dvd and blu-ray releases uh, did not contain the audio commentary with jack lemon which was on the laser disc but it has been reinstated thankfully for the new collector's edition of glengarry glenn ross so this is a pretty yes pretty comprehensive pretty pretty complete uh, and like i said new transfer and new conversations there so Certainly, 
worth picking up if you are a fan. Yeah, and, that's uh, interesting that they included Joe Montaigne on there. I mean, he was he he, he was the stage. He originated it on stage, mm-hmm. but has obviously nothing to do with the movie. But uh, yes, that's interesting. You know, and I think the movie works because of the the. You know, a lot a lot of stage plays, especially something as talky as Mammoth, that mm-hmm. takes place largely in one location, I guess two locations. Uh, it, you know, it's too static for movies. It's not movieish enough. But I think mm-hmm. I think Foley filmed it in in just the right way. Uh, but it's really, I think, the performances that uh, keep people coming back to it. Oh yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I and you know I never was much of a fan of uh, adaptations of stage plays to film when I was in my early twenties when this came out. And I remember when it came out in theaters, I I skipped it. I opted to to skip this one. I thought you know it's probably just a photograph stage play, and ah, I mean there's some good actors there, but eh, probably not for me. And then when I caught up on it on with it on video, obviously years later. Uh, just was amazed and really was kicking myself that I didn't see it in the theater. So uh, bad call on my part, but you live and you learn. Man, I do remember so. though. Man, I was crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy about Pacino, and so I went to see that movie in the theater. And for days, mm-hmm. I found myself so infected by his showcase performance that I was like walking like the the cock of the walk, you know, like with major <laughs> attitude. I was, you know, his his Ricky Roma had infused itself in inside me so i can understand that yeah it, it's kind of infectious as they say but yeah certain certainly a great film and i uh, you know like i said i i don't have that i don't share that same attitude these days i i've gotten away from that that um those thoughts but in my early 20s there was a lot i didn't know and there's still a lot i don't know now but uh, God, living the, in we were the the line readings though my favorite Pacino yes. line reading in that movie. You think about a way that anyone else would say this line, and they'd say it. They'd say it like, "What are you going to do about it, asshole?" But he says, "What are you going to do about it, asshole?" Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that. Yes. I love that. It's my favorite line reading in the whole thing. Yep. It's just the way he does it. Yeah, and they're they're all all ah they're just all great. And of course, I know most of our listeners know this already that the uh, the part that's often talked about the Alec Baldwin part was written especially for the movie. I'm sure most people know that, but yeah. it's worth mentioning just in case somebody mentioned that tidbit, uh, missed that tidbit. So yeah, good good stuff. And uh, I, I did get a chance to look at it. The transfer is the best it's ever looked. And so hey, got a and I love the cover for this. It's got some great cover art. The cover art is nothing but a, a hand with a pair of brass balls on the front of the the front of the cover. It's reversible art. You, the original um, theatrical artwork is on the other side, but uh, pretty good, pretty good. So anyway, we'll move along to the 45th anniversary edition of Jaws, which has been issued in 4K Ultra yeah. HD. So. I know we've we've seen this released multiple times on the home video and but you know it was it does turn 45 years old this month and so they had to do something to make it special and so they did with a new 4K rendering and I I did not get a review copy of this I think Universal's been having 
having some trouble getting their review product out. I had requested one, so sad, but sadly did not get a chance to look at it. Can't really comment, but I hear that it looks pretty, pretty incredible. I got one. So, did you? Yeah. Uh, lucky uh, you. And I hear it looks terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I. Uh, that's what I've been told. Here's what happened. My best friend Rick, his favorite movie is Jaws. Mm-hmm. And so his birthday came up, and uh, I um, i shouldn't admit this on the show, but screw it. His birthday came up, and uh, you know I was placed on furlough for my day job and really didn't have any money to buy him a gift. But lo and behold, the day of his birthday, Jaws came in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, I'll have him watch it. He could tell me what it looks like. And apparently it looks fantastic. So, uh-huh. What a nice guy you are. <laughs> yeah, and he, he was so excited. He was like, 10 days before it comes out to the public. Said, How did you do this? And so I, did, I, I didn't reveal it. I was like, you know, I have my ways. <laughs> I have my sources. I totally wasn't expecting to receive it. Yeah. Yeah, I requested one. It didn't happen for me. So, uh, you know, that happens sometimes. I don't know. It's, in these days, you, you're just thankful for whatever you can get. And some things – and I'm constantly surprised. Some things that I think I'm not going to wind up getting a, a review copy of, uh, I'm able to get one. And some things I – that I'm pretty sure I'm going to get one of. Uh, it doesn't turn up, so yeah. Um, Parasite, the Best Picture winner for uh, at this year's Oscars, has finally been issued on 4K. It was released on Blu-ray, of course, in January, and so just want to mention that it's out there on 4K uh, as well. And here's something that um, we'll use this as a tie-in to our Movie Geek Yearbook. Al Adamson, the Masterpiece Collection Good Lord. Set. Yes. Yeah. 32 movies from Severin Films, including the new documentary Blood and Flesh, the real life and ghastly death of Al Adamson, which I did I did uh, get a review copy of that one, the, the uh, documentary itself, and was quite impressed. Uh, that's a quite engrossing uh, uh, overview of his life and uh, death. And if you don't know that story, well, that's a that's certainly uh, an yeah. interest to behold. That's a good little documentary. And when I talked to him last year, he told me about this 32 movie box set, and I was like, "Holy mm-hmm. shit! Such a lot of effort to put into Al Adamson." But uh, you know, I think their initial run of however many I don't know how many copies they they pressed, maybe 750. I think those are pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. So they're probably going to go through a second pressing. Which is good. Yeah, that is good. It's uh, it's quite a collection. Like I said, 32 films. Um, and if you're an Al Adamson fan, you know what they are. So I probably don't need to go through all of them. But um, it's 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 got the good, the bad, and the ugly there. So. <laughs> or you know, the bad and the ugly. <laughs> yeah. So some of his films are actually better than others, and you know. It's amazing the talent that he was able to get for some of these for, for some of these films. It's pretty uh, interesting. I think one of the, his films was scored by Nelson Riddle, who did yeah. the arrangements for <laughs> Frank Sinatra. And then you've got uh, those great cinematographers that he employed. You know, Vilmo Sigmund and yeah. uh, Laszlo Kobach. It's uh, he was lucky. Yeah, he got in it at just the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Anyway, the Al Adamson collection, the Masterpiece collection. <laughs> Al Adamson, the Masterpiece collection. Dude. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Is it really? Uh, <laughs> that's a little tongue-in-cheek nod there, I guess. But anyway, uh, Severin Films issuing that. Uh, Urban Cowboy has been issued in the 40th anniversary edition from Paramount. And um, I did get a chance to look at this. It's, it looks the best it's ever looked on home video. Um of course, we recently, I recently conducted an interview with uh, a close friend of the director, James Bridges, and that's off, and he tells you a little bit more about uh, how that project came to be and all that. But the, the, if you're a fan of Urban Cowboy, and, and I am, uh, as, as are quite a few people, I would say, from the, uh, the amount, from the, um, uh, the amount of business that it did when it originally came out and the, uh, the amount of copies that it's sold over the years, I would say. Uh, it has this new edition, 40th anniversary edition, has good times with Gilly, looking back at Urban Cowboy, a, a short documentary. And there are deleted scenes, which are interesting because they've never been issued on video before. They're in HD. And this, there were the deleted scenes were in the film when it was broadcast on ABC television to make oh. it into a three-hour running time. And these are... They've, uh, they've been put here separately. Uh, you have the outtakes. Is that like the? Does that include the scene where Donald Pleasance goes to the psych ward and talks to young Michael? <laughs> yeah, I would like to see the Urban Cowboy, the version of Urban Cowboy with that in it. Yeah, that would that would be interesting. Um, outtakes. It has outtakes and rehearsal footage. So uh, wow. anyway, Urban Cowboy. Tell you what, man, that made the mechanical bull all the rage. Sure did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it really did, and it made country line dancing into a a thing. Yeah, Mickey Gilly's still alive. He is. He is still around. Uh, Gilly's the bar is not. It burned to the ground. Uh, mm. I think in the nineties. So it is no longer with us. But Mickey Gilly is, as is his cousins, cousins <laughs> Jimmy Swaggart and Jerry Lee Lewis. They're both around too. Oh, so. I did not know they were all related. They are. Goodness. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah. yeah, I have a close tie to Mickey Gilly. Because I, uh-huh. yeah, I would sing country music when I was little. And so the public performances I did singing at the, the Opry House, um, we'd go to festivals and stuff, and, and Mickey Gilly's Don't the Girls All Get Prettier Closing Time was always my signature song. I guess people liked seeing an eight-year-old sing that song. <laughs> <laughs> It's too bad you don't have a video of that that you can post. I've got audio cassettes. Yeah, I've never gone back and listened to them. But. Ah, very good. Yeah, that would be that would be most interesting. Yeah, I was a fan of uh, that soundtrack's got some great songs on it. I mean, it really, really does. Uh, I had forgotten how many great songs come from that film until I went back and rewatched it. And yeah, there's uh, yeah, I like that period of time in country music. I really do. I do too. And this is, yeah. of course, a Robert Evans production. Somebody that you don't, wouldn't necessarily associate with anything country. <laughs> yeah, I know. I wonder how that because it was a co-production between him and Irving Azoff, who, of course, is the uh, known for managing the Eagles, among many other things. And uh, I wonder how that worked with those two guys working together as producers. <laughs> I would yeah. like to know. That might have been interesting. Um, yeah. But it did, did quite well, and uh, like I said, the soundtrack, I think at one point, I think that, that might have been, that record may have been broken, but I know at one point 
it was the uh, the soundtrack album with the most top 40 songs from from the uh, a film hmm. at one point so. hey, Travolta had that market cornered yeah this one even beat uh, Saturday Night Fever in terms of the number of top 40 singles. There are quite a quite a number of them. So anyway, well, we'll move on to 2003's animated Japanime, Tokyo Godfathers, directed by Satoshi Kon, and that's a Shout Factory release. That's well regarded among animation buffs. And they've got some some new featurettes here, new transfer. Uh, for anybody who's a fan of Tokyo Godfathers from 2003, we have that. And I want to mention this for any horror fans out there. The Creepshow television series has been issued on DVD and Blu-ray as well. There's 12 episodes on this collection. Uh, has a lot of the – some of the people who appeared in the films, like uh, Adrian Barbeau turns up in one of them, and there are others – so it does have some ties to the to the films. Uh, Bruce Davison is also there in one of the episodes, and David Arquette, and so Jeffrey Combs, that type of stuff. So anyway, the Creepshow television series, first season. It's when did that air? Uh, last fall, actually. Oh, that's right. That's the Nicotera, the Walking yeah, Dead guy. Right. Mm-hmm. right, right, right. Okay. Yep. So Scorpion Releasing, which is uh, being distributed, and this one's being distributed by Kino, has issued The Mechanic from 1972. Ooh, Bronson. With, yeah, Bronson and, of course, Jan Michael Vincent. Uh, it's also worth mentioning, and this ties into something that happened this past week. It was um, written by Louis John Carlino, who passed away this past week. And mm. uh, Louis John Carlino was a writer, a screenwriter whose work I was very fond of. He uh, directed several films, The Sailor Who Fell from Grace uh, from the Sea and The Great Santini. He wrote mm. and directed that as well uh, and was Oscar nominated for the screenplay I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Seconds and Resurrection with Ellen Burstyn. Seconds with Rock Hudson, of course. So quite a quite an interesting – and he directed class. Oh, um, 1984, McCarthy. right? <laughs> yes, Andrew McCarthy, <laughs> who will come up in conversation here pretty soon. But um, really? anyway, okay. we uh, <laughs> rest in peace, Louis John Carlino, and one of his signature films, The Mechanic, has been issued by Scorpion releasing flash gordon has been issued in a 40th anniversary edition that's exclusive to best buy at this point but i will go ahead and say that in august arrow is issuing it on 4k wow. and in the meantime we have this 40th anniversary blu-ray which has a few new extra features so we'll mention that there are a couple kino titles here they came from beyond space and let's kill uncle let's kill uncle was one of the um william castle productions oh and it stars Nigel Green, Mary Batum, who was also, I believe, in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I wonder what his uh, marketing ploy was for that movie. Uncles get in free, I... half off. It or... <laughs> could be. You never know with uh, William Castle, the king of that sort of thing. But anyway, Let's Kill Uncle was, uh, like I said, that was one of his uh, his films, his features from the 60s. And like I said, they came from Beyond Space. Is uh, another. This is a, directed by Freddie Francis, the fame who gained fame for his cinematography and several um, 
very well-regarded films from the 90s, but he was a director in the 60s working for – and this is one of his uh, – I think it's a TV movie, I believe, maybe, or I'm not sure. Or yeah. maybe it was straight to TV here, but anyway. Yeah, Freddie Francis uh, started out making Hammer films. Yeah, I think this might be one of those. And um, see Gurley. Gurley's a great movie from Freddie Francis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm aware of it, but have never seen it. Gurley, huh? Mm-hmm. We'll have to keep that in mind. So let's see. So we have uh, The Queen from 1968 has been issued by Kino Lorber as well. This is um, – it was a, a groundbreaking documentary about the 1967 Miss All-American Camp beauty pageant, huh. which introduced audiences to the world of competitive drag. And like I said, this was made in 1968 or released rather in 1968 and directed by Frank Simon. So it's it's interesting in the in this era of – uh, tra- embracing transgender, hmm. uh, this that this film has was so far ahead of the curve. So I think that's worth worth mentioning. America, as seen by a Frenchman, is an Arrow video release at the end of the 1950s. Celebrated French documentarian Francois Reichenbach, Reichenbach spent 18 months traveling the United States documenting its diverse regions and their inhabitants and pastimes. The result, America, as seen by a Frenchman, is a journey through a multitude of different Americas filtered through a French sensibility. What year? Like I said, Arrow, uh, 1960 was 1960. the release date on this. It was filmed in the uh, late 50s by Francois Reichenbach. Kennedy's election year. Yeah, the, yeah, that's uh, I think that's covered um uh, maybe in this thing but um this is this is well regarded uh I did get uh, a review copy of it I have not gotten around to it yet but um it uh stars Jean Cocteau Oh it's a one of the stars Is it a documentary or a narrative it's a, Uh it's supposedly a documentary because okay. uh, he traveled around 18 months traveling the United States so I'm not sure if Jean Cocteau uh, is one of the narrators, or but it is a documentary. So yes, America as seen through the eyes of a Frenchman from 1960. Yeah, that's an Arrow video release, and so we'll move along to Jean Cocteau, the director. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> he's got a he's he's billed as being one of the stars okay. so anyway um so we'll move to june 9th and one of my favorite films of the 1970s an unmarried woman has i've been clamoring for this one to be issued on blu-ray and thankfully it finally was uh, criterion has seen fit to issue this one. Oh wow director uh, paul mazurski's he wrote and directed this and it was uh, his look at the after effects of a divorce uh, Jill Clayburgh was Oscar nominated, and um, I think the film had some other Oscar nominations as well, but I just think it's a spectacular film. Uh, the great cast, Jill Clayburgh, Alan Bates, Michael Murphy, Cliff Gorman, a great score by Bill Conti. And, um, you know, it's it's a great snapshot also of late 70s New York City, a time that's long gone, a place that's long gone, I should say, and... I don't know. There's just something about the uh, 
the, the time in which it was filmed and the, the subject material, the acting, it all comes together for me. And I just think it's a beautiful film and love it, love it, love it. I to the point where I have a one sheet of it framed and hanging in my in my home. Mm. So that's how much of a fan I am of an unmarried woman. And uh, one of the great things, and this is long out of print on DVD. Uh, so it's great that they're reissuing it because the DVD had an audio commentary from 2005 that featured Paul Mazursky and Jill Clayburgh, both of whom are no longer with us. So uh, that was one of the selling points for getting the original DVD, which was out of print. And now, thankfully, uh, it's included here along with new interviews with actors Michael Murphy and Lisa Lucas, who plays the couple's daughter. Hmm. And there's a new interview with Sam Wasson. We recently, you recently, had a conversation with and about Chinatown and his new book on Chinatown. Uh, audio recording of Mazursky speaking at the American Film Institute in 1980, and there's an essay by critic Angelica Jade Bastian. So there we go, an unmarried woman being issued by Criterion. Wow. A wonderful edition that, that looks great, sounds great, and like I said, has some nice extras. So, uh, we have Cannery Row from 1982, Nick Nolte and Deborah Winger. This was, we were speaking of Deborah Winger, obviously she's an urban cowboy, but this was her next film, I believe, uh, that was released after Urban Cowboy, but it was before An Officer and a Gentleman, and of course An Officer and a Gentleman, and then Terms of Endearment took her career to stratospheric heights, but Cannery Row was the one that was in between there, and it didn't really, didn't really do a whole lot for her. At the time, um, it's based on two novels by John Steinbeck. David S. Ward adapted. He wrote and directed the film, and it has some virtues. I think I uh, I have I did get a chance to look at the uh, the review copy. It, it's beautiful. They've done a great job mastering it. I'll, I'll say that. It just looks beautiful. Uh, it was filmed on two sound stages. There are two just. The sound stages were, were uh, the, the palette of the film was so big they had, it, it, they had to use two sound stages to get it to put them together in order to film the thing. And um, of course, the story is that Nick Nolte is a he's a baseball player who had a tragic accident that sidelined his career, and so now he's a marine biologist. And Deborah Winger. Can't find a job. She comes to town and becomes a, a lady of the night, and um, they kind of the townspeople try to kind of get them together, and uh, that's how it all. That's basically what the plot is. And uh, the town folk are they kind of look like they come out of a Norman Rockwell painting. <laughs> that's what they remind you of. Uh, it's a slight movie, I would say. It's very slight, but not without its charms. <coughs> Um, so anyway, there are no extras on this, but it's a Warner Archive release, and I just wanted to mention that uh, Cannery Row is, uh, if you're a fan of Nick Nolte and or Deborah Winger, it's it's certainly worth seeking out, or at least. Uh, I'm a fan into. of the other movie they did together, The Everybody Wins. Yeah, that is pretty good. I, I uh, it's been so long since I've seen that, but yeah, but uh, they seem to have chemistry in both of those. Uh, I, I thought they did anyway, but um, yeah. 
It was a double feature from Kino, The H-Man and Battle in Outer Space, 1958-1959. That's a, uh, two, two movies for the price of one. I want to mention that. Uh, the 1971 television film, Brian Song, has been issued on Blu-ray mm. from Sony. It's one of their made-for-order discs that they manufacture on demand. And, of course, this was James Caan the year before he broke out into uh, mainstream stardom with The Godfather. Uh, quite a, it was uh, considered to be one of the – well, I think it was the highest-rated television film of all time up until The Night Stalker changed all that in January hmm. of 72. But, but uh, leading up – before The Night Stalker made its debut, Brian Song was the highest-rated television film of all time and, and still has uh, has some certain – has some moments – yeah, that are it's one of those movie. great uh, grown men cry movies. Yes, yes, it uh, it certainly does. It has an audio commentary, believe it or not, with James Caan and Billy D. Williams. So uh, they're reminiscing really? about their yeah. That's that's actually uh, a carryover from the DVD release, but certainly worth a listen. I wonder if they're in the studio together. Uh, it appears that they are. I mean, just from my listening to it, and it's been a while since I listened to it, but I remember that was my impression of it. So, hmm. anyway, uh, they seem like they're they haven't seen each other in a while, and they're trying to catch up, and you know, reminiscing about the film. So, anyway, if you're a fan of Brian's song, uh, the transfer I'm told is quite quite good. So. Anyway, like I said, Sony has issued that. Aquino uh, Lorber has issued the Deanna Durbin collection, three films from 1937 to 1941. 100 Men and a Girl, Three Smart Girls Grow Up, and it started with Eve. And um, so this is, uh, like I said, Kino, Kino has opted to issue the Deanna Durbin collection, and it's billed as Deanna Durbin Collection 1, so I'm assuming there's another one on the way. Princess Caribou from 1994, which uh, stars Phoebe Cates, um, also stars uh, Jim Broadbent and Wendy Hughes and Cates' husband, Kevin Klein, and also John Lithgow. It takes place in Bristol, England in the early 19th century, and it's about a beautiful uh, young girl who speaks a weird language and is tried for the crime of begging and a man claims he can translate her dialect, and it's understood the woman is a princess from a faraway land. But then there's a reporter who doesn't believe she really is, and there's, so there's a mystery at the center of it all, directed by Michael Austin. But this is a Shout Select, one of their titles that they've opt, opted to release on their Shout Select line. So just wanted to mention that, and and Frank Remembered from 1995, which was a documentary about Anne Frank, obviously, but this covers the whole span of her life, not just the diary. So you kind of get a, uh, a portrait of her uh, life as a whole, which was tragically cut short, obviously. Uh, it's an Academy Award winner for Best Documentary Film. Mm. So it did win that year in 1995, but Sony has – Issued that also as a as an on demand title, so if you so wish to get it, you can order it and they'll press it. And you're um, and Victor and Victoria, which is uh, from 1933, which was later remade as uh, Victor Victoria. This is the original version. That's a Kino release as well. Uh, as is My Twentieth Century from 1989. 
That's um, that's one I'm not really familiar with. But um, anyway, it's uh, uh, the reviews on it are pretty good. So anyway, my 20th century. That's one that I've I've missed. But Kino Lorber has issued that. So just wanted to to make sure everybody knows that's out there as well. And let's see, moving along now to we're up to June the old, June the sixteenth. June the sixteenth. And we kind of teased about this one earlier. How about Pretty in Pink for the first time on Blu-ray? If you can imagine, it's hard to believe that this has never been issued on Blu-ray with all these cults of 80s nostalgists out there, you, you would think that they would have issued this soon, earlier, but it's one of the Paramount Presents line of titles, the sixth title in that line. They've been pumping these out steadily since April, and uh, this has a, a new transfer, of course, new 4K film transfer supervised by director Howard Deutsch. Uh, in, includes a filmmaker-focus featurette with director Howard Deutsch on Pretty in Pink and the isolated film score. Uh, also has a, um, a featurette on The Lost Dance, the original ending of the film. Apparently the footage has been lost from the original ending, but they, the cast and crew remember what the original ending was like and what everybody's reaction was to it. And then there's the ori- original theatrical trailer. Hmm. And uh, so there you go. You and... Uh, our good friend Rick got a chance to recreate that final scene <laughs> on the steps of the. <laughs> That's right. At the Millennium Biltmore, we re- recreated sure the closing prom sequence. Which you one sure was did. I? Was Molly Ringwald and and Rick was a uh, was Ducky. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. My daughter and I took uh, we we revisited this one and she had she remembered that picture and so I I dug it up and showed it to her once again <laughs> and another laugh. So uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, listen to Andrew McCarthy's interview on Brett Easton Ellis. He comes across as a little bit of a prick. <laughs> it's it's an interesting because I'd never heard anything from Andrew McCarthy. Um, I don't even remember seeing interviews with him back in the day when he, when people knew who he mm-hmm. was in the eighties. But uh, he's very, I mean, he's very opinionated, and most of his opinions have to do with how. Uh, uh, others are being cited for accomplishments he thinks that he he, he deserved notoriety for. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Um, not to pile on him, but uh, one of my colleagues was at the actual press junket. We talked about this off on, on a private conversation, but uh, one of my colleagues was in a press junket for Pretty in Pink in the mid '80s. He was invited. He was in college at the time, and Paramount was paying to send college kids out to their world premieres of their films in Hollywood. So he was really excited, and it was an exci- uh, uh, his assignment was to go out and interview all the cast and the crew at the world premiere, and or the you know the, well most of the cast and, and the director, I guess. May I don't know if John Hughes was there, but anyway, point is he said everybody was just delightful until he got to Andrew McCarthy, and then he was there was nothing but one word answers. Uh, he said it was like pulling teeth to get him to answer a question, and uh, Somebody, uh, another one of our colleagues that was also there said that he wasn't sure if he was high or a moron or both. Right. <laughs> Not my words, mind you. Uh, but apparently he was really difficult, and maybe the years have changed him. I mean, we all grow, and we'll, we'll be hopeful. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I, maybe. I, just, I mean, the I, thing that the thing that I was taken by when he was talking about Pretty and Pink in that interview was that 
he could not understand the direction the movie was taking, especially with John Cryer's performance. And a lot of Pretty pretty in Pink, a lot of people, the teenage girls thought that Cryer was adorable and all that stuff. <coughs> I don't I don't know. I, I was never the audience for Pretty in Pink. But anyway, Andrew McCarthy's beef was, you know, why why would she go with him? He's clearly playing the part like he's gay. And I was thinking to myself, you know, Andrew McCarthy has never been like overtly masculine in any movie he's done. <laughs> so it was quite like a criticism coming from him. Yeah, that's that is that is something that's quite interesting and it's uh I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not. I had never really noticed it until my uh, my sister actually pointed it out to me, and now it's glaringly obvious. As uh, you know, hey, he had shaved his head for his next film when they decided that the ending of the film didn't work, so he had to. They put this wig on him, for, and they brought him back in to reshoot the end of the film, the one that's in the film now. And so his the wig resembles some something of a mushroom. Really? And, uh, yeah, it does not look. It's been. At so, all. I watched it when I was a kid. You know, I, and I have never felt the need to return to it. Um, uh, I guess I will one day, but uh, if I get around to it. But all those yeah. McCarthy movies, whether it be Lesson Zero or Fresh Horses, or is that the name of that movie? Fresh Horses or Wild Horses? So. Fresh Horses, I believe you're right. Yeah, what a terrible title for a movie. Uh, movies like that I have never gone back and watched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I always had a a fondness for pretty in pink because it came out. I was in uh, high school at the time and I don't know, it kind of, I could identify it to some of the situations in the film and some of the characters. I knew some people who were, who were like some of the characters in the film. So I don't know. I, yeah, it's, I'm not, not going to tell you it's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life, but there's a certain fondness there. That's for not it, a so. slight, a slight against John Hughes either. I no. mean, the most interesting thing I learned about John Hughes was actually from Howard Deutsch, uh, because we were talking about the making of Pretty in Pink, and he was talking about the the writing process, and Hughes was going through it with him, and I think Howard Deutsch uh, fell asleep or something in the in the meeting that they had together because they were going on for hours, and by the time he woke up, like John Hughes had written like forty two pages of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And he was just a basic writer, like it just poured out of him. Yeah, it was. It was. He was on fire there for a while. It is pretty amazing when you think about it, for sure. So, um, so we'll move on from Pretty in Pink to some uh, Paramount title. Actually, they're doing a. They've released a 40th anniversary edition of Friday the 13th in a steel book. <laughs> nice little steel book here, and um, well, it's the. I think it's the same transfer that's been on previous editions but it is the uncut version this is the unrated cut so it's got a little more gore in it that than you would find in the r-rated film that's uh than the r-rated version that's been uh, the one that was released theatrically so this is a uh, this is about a minute or two longer as commentary by sean s cunningham the cast and the crew friday the 13th reunion in hd fresh cuts new tales from friday the 13th the Man Behind the Legacy, Sean S. Cunningham, Lost Tales from Camp Blood, Part 1, it says, and the Friday the 13th Chronicles and Secrets Galore Behind the Gore. So uh, loaded a, with a lot of What a horrific, extras. horrific movie. And not in the right way. No, I know. Uh, you know, it's funny. What's, how this what's the good is. one? What, like, if you were to pick a good, fr- or not even a good, 
the lesser of all evils when it comes to the <laughs> Friday the 13th series? What would you choose? I think I'd have to go with number three because, and that's only if you can actually see it in 3D. I did get a chance to see it in 3D years ago, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, some of the, the 3D effects were were pretty creative and inventive, and I don't know. That's probably the one that I would go to, but uh, if I saw it in 2D, probably not. So that would be a tough. One. I've, I've I've returned. You know, <coughs> I I don't necessarily like any of them but i i do watch them occasionally like if i really want to pass time i'll be like i'll put on a friday the 13th but the first one yeah. is 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 i i rarely go back to the first one but i do go back to the third one and there's this really interesting blog or vlog video blog that somebody did revisiting the locations of friday the 13th part 3 and that barn is still there where the biker gang was attacked by wow. jason still yeah. there uh, which I I thought was really cool. I like to see that kind of stuff. I've corresponded with Seanus Cunningham twice over the years by email, and the first time was to invite him onto our Friday the Thirteenth tribute show years ago when Michael Bay came out with that awful remake, uh, and he uh, he didn't have the time to do it then. And then the second time I was asking asking him about this girl. She was eighteen years old. She disappeared in Fort Lauderdale. The last movie she did was Spring Break. And it was said that she attended a, a rap party for spring break. And something happened during that party that really made her frightened for her life. And a couple a couple of months later, she disappeared off the face of the earth and has never been seen again. So Sean S. Cunningham directed spring break, or I think he directed it. Might have just, I think he directed it. So I contacted him about her and he was like, you know, I don't, I don't know this girl, but you know, there are a lot of girls on that set. <laughs> I'm sure there are lots of things that happened during that rap party. Oh, wow. Yeah. Boy, fun times for him, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember the, I remember the movie. I, I couldn't tell you two things about it. But, uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. This, uh, yeah, if you are, I, I just remember my memories of Friday the Thirteenth are, you know, I, I, when it came out, my parents wouldn't take me to see R-rated movies, and I was, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was ten years old when it came out, and so, uh, you know, and it was a big deal. Of course, everybody was talking about it, and so it finally made its its television debut about two years later. But they ran it late at night, like it was on at eleven thirty or something. They didn't run it in prime time. Oh. It was uh, one of these things where they. They they ran it to local stations and they could run it at a later time because they didn't they didn't trim too much of the gore and I just remember being bored shitless uh, by it even at, when I was twelve years old and finally saw it I was this is boring is Cunningham the director of the original yes yes okay and yeah. then he just went on to produce the remainder right yes that's correct yeah I think Steve Miner directed right. Uh, two, right. two three and then there was some of the yeah but I I just um, I don't know. I was bored by it, and I can't say that like with these other horror franchises, so, you know, like Nightmare on Elm Street. I, most of those are in, even if they push it to a comedic level, <laughs> there are at least laughs there to be had, if nothing else. It's, right. You know, but with Friday the Thirteenth, it was just, it was just boring. Well, the funny thing um, was a couple of weeks ago, Stephen King revealed on Twitter that one of the books that he thought of writing that he dismissed was a book told from Jason Voorhees point of view. So it was, <laughs> so it was going to be like uh, J Jason Voorhees perspective. And he's thinking, 
why do all these damn kids keep showing up? Like, are, aren't they scared off by this point? Like, what's going on? <laughs> I would like to read that, actually. <laughs> that would be fun. Well, I guess we they do we do have to observe Friday the 13th because it was a pop cultural uh, milestone for for good or bad um, when it came out. That's for sure. Yeah. So. I mean, hell, we devoted like six hours to it. Yeah, and that's right. all the all the original cast members. The you know, uh, it's the first nice thing. I remember when we did that the tribute to Friday the Thirteenth. I mean, Betsy Palmer was on it, and she's passed now. And then Adrian, uh, Adrian King, Adrian King, King, she came on, and and then she sent uh, me a poster. She signed a poster and mailed it to me. Oh wow! Yeah, How I was nice. like, oh, that's nice. I mean, that's never happened since. And Matthew Modine sent me like a poster. And that's. From Full Metal Jacket, but those are the only two times that's happened. Oh, that's sweet. Very, very nice. Yeah. So, well, there you have it. There is a 40th anniversary steel book of Friday the thir- the 13th out there. So there you go. Uh, so Scream Factory has issued the fifth volume in their ongoing Universal Horror Collection, and this one includes. Several films from the years 1941 to 1945. The Monster and the Girl. Captive Wild Woman. What's that, what's that one about? The Monster and the Girl? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wonder. Uh, it has actually the special features on Monster and the Girl are a new transfer and new audio commentary with film historians Tom Weaver and Steve Cronenberg. Captive Wild Woman from 1943 has a new audio commentary with Tom Weaver. Theatrical trailer still. Gallery Jungle Woman from 1944 features a new 2K film transfer and a new commentary with George William Hank in a still gallery. And Jungle Captive from 1945 features a new 2K transfer and a new commentary with film historian Scott Gallinghouse and a theatrical trailer. So there you go. Uh, I would say probably not the strongest batch of Universal horror titles, but... <laughs> Uh, I know there are a lot of fans of these, so yeah. I want to make sure that uh, give it its due. And The Hills Run Red from 2009. Speaking of Scream Factory, that's another one of their releases. And this is one of those horror films that definitely has a cult following. Um, directed by Dave Parker. It's, uh, you know, they say uh, the, the story on this one, basically, you heard the story, the one about the goriest, bloodiest spider fest ever, This, the one made in the 80s but mysteriously lost. Flash forward to now. The young Fright fans search for the secret location where the movie was shot, hoping to find the film. What they find is the mysterious slasher flick is more than a movie, and so they start getting knocked off and all that stuff. Anyway, like I said, uh, this one has six hours of extras, I'm told, So, and the movie's only 81 minutes. Good boy. So <laughs> if you are a fan of The Hills That Run Red, uh, well, you're – And really, who, who isn't? I mean, come on. <laughs> right. It's uh, right there beneath Chinatown on most people's best of lists. So anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a show, it's a Scream Factory release. And anyway, Dark Force Entertainment has issued the Giant Spider Invasion from 1975. You were speaking of Stephen King earlier, and I always remember the Giant Spider Invasion uh, that he referenced this in Dance Macabre, his film, uh, uh, his book rather about the history of horror, mm-hmm. because he makes mention of the fact that they basically took Volks- Volkswagen Beetles and dressed them up as giant spiders, and people just drove them around. So the spiders in the film are actually. 
costumed Volkswagens. Uh, but anyway, whatever the case, the giant spider invasion from 1975 has been issued in a new, uh, with new, uh, new transfer remastered edition, uh, struck from the original 35 millimeter camera negative. So giant spider vision, um, Doris Day's first film romance on the high seas from 1948. And directed by Michael Curtiz, oh. with a script by Julius J. and Philip J. Epstein. Uh, Julius Epstein, of course, famously known for Casablanca. And then uh, you have additional dialogue by I.A.L. Diamond, who later on would go on to become Billy Wilder's writing partner. And this is a musical that um, several of the songs, I think, became pretty big hits. And uh, it has, like I said, there's Jack Carson, Janice Page, Don DeFore, and Doris Day. Like I said, this is her film debut. Uh, this, uh, I think she was um, on her way. She was getting ready to leave Hollywood. She had gone out and tried to make it, and she was not working out. And she was at a party and sang at this party, and they uh, they urged her to go audition for this film. And that's how it came about, from what I understand. Wow. So... Anyway, the, the choreography is by Busby Berkeley, so that's interesting to note as well. Is she still anyway, living, Doris Day? Died last year, actually. Last so. year, yeah, that's what I thought. She lived a, she lived a long time. She was <coughs> like Tippi Hedren. She was into animal uh, conservation, you know, animal rights and animal conservation. Yeah, had a house full of dogs, I understand, I believe, so. Well. Yes, Ah, so special features, vintage musical short, Let's Sing a Song from the Movies, and classic cartoon hair, Bugs Bunny cartoon, obviously, and a theatrical trailer. So anyway, Romance on the High Seas, and this is a pretty big deal because it's um, it's a Technicolor film, and they've gone back, and I think they've done a major restoration on this. From what I understand, the people at Warner Archive have, have really done a, uh, a major undertaking trying to get this film to look the best it's ever looked and supposedly it's beautiful to look at i again didn't have time to to check it out before the show unfortunately apologies but anyway primal scream is another dark force entertainment release this one's from 1987 and uh features a cast that i'm not aware of kenneth mcgregor and sharon mason a private detective in the future tries to stop a large corporation from mining an element whose side effects include igniting human flesh and destroying internal body parts. So there's the uh, the story behind Primal Scream from 1987. Wow. So whatever it's worth, Dark Force Entertainment has issued that one. Dark Force Entertainment, is this a yeah, new? Yeah, that's a new a company. New... It must be a new boutique label. I'm, huh. I'm not really familiar with them, I must say. So, Mary Queen of Scots is a Kino Lorber release from 1971, which was remade just a year or two ago, I think. But this this version is considered to be much, much more um, the, the better of the two, I should say. This is, uh, like I said, from 1971 and directed by Charles Jarrett and starring Vanessa Redgrave, Glenda Jackson, Patrick McGowan, Timothy Dalton, and Nigel Davenport and Trevor Howard, featuring a terrific score. By John Barry. Yeah. So, anyway, Mary, Queen of Scots from Kino Lorber with some new transfer and some new extras there. So, just wanted to uh, to put that one out there, get the word out. Um, 
Let's see. So we have a two four of uh, two two movies for the price of one. Gladiator and Braveheart, two sword and sandal films that won Best Picture in the 90s, early 2000s, and they've both been issued as 4K Ultra HD. First time mm-hmm. ever as 4K releases. Well, that, so, fits. that fits that format. Yes, I think so, too. And it's two, funny. Two movies I've never returned to. Yeah, same here. Well, I, th- I did return to Braveheart once. I think so. I think I did too. You know, and 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 that Braveheart, that's one of the most beautiful James Horner scores. I think. Uh, you know, he he became, I think, success kind of like overwhelming success kind of made him repeat the same score over and over again once he hit with Titanic, like everything had to have bagpipes in it. But uh, the uh, his Braveheart score is really beautiful. Yes, totally agree. It's a very, very, very good score. So, yeah. But if you are a fan of Braveheart and uh, Gladiator and or Gladiator, and uh, these have been issued uh, also as uh, separate titles, uh, so you can get them separately. But the Gladiator includes the extended cut, which is about 20 minutes longer, I think. So there's there's that. Actually, Braveheart does have bagpipes in it. I, I, I realize that now. But uh, <laughs> so it just does. just strike what I just said. <laughs> well, I but it, but mean. it is but it is beautiful. Yes. Well, this is funny. Uh, we we talk about how things kind of uh, it's weird how things pop up that are topical. And I just mentioned this a while ago. Louis Jar- John Carlino's passing that we just mentioned earlier in the show, and we were talking about his directorial debut, The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea. Well, guess what? Scorpion Releasing has put that one out as well. So two of uh, – in addition to The Mechanic, which was penned by Louis John Carlino, this one was written and directed by uh, Louis John Carlino. It's a pretty good film, actually. I have seen this one uh, in years past, Sarah Miles and Chris Christopherson. Mm. And it's a love story of a British widow and an American seaman complicated by her 13-year-old son. Like I said, I was a big fan of Louis John Carlino's work in any way in general, and so this is kind of catnip for me. Uh, I just thought he was a, a very um, – a name that people needed to be more aware of. I tell and you what, man. We really got to put our thinking caps on and talk to some of these people like him before they pass. Yes. I mean, the 1970 series has afforded me an opportunity to do that, but we've really got to, like, dig deep. <laughs> I know, I know. I was, I, I have long wanted to talk to him, and I just, I wasn't, I, I, I did a couple of searches to see if I could find him, and I was having trouble locating him on social media, and he, he was in his 80s, so maybe he didn't do that sort of thing, but, uh, you know, I kind of gave up, and I wish I had been more diligent in my uh, looking to make a connection with him because man, I loved his stuff. He just had, I don't know, his stuff had a sense of humanity that, uh, uh, especially his dramas. Like I said, I, and of course I've talked many times about how much I love resurrection, which I just think is a beautiful, beautiful movie. So anyway, well, if you ever, you know, resurrection, where's, where is that? I'm looking, that's I'm, the one. That's uh, Ellen Burstyn. Yeah, I'm looking. Oh, there it is. Okay, I see it now. If you ever have problems finding somebody, just let me know, and I'll try to track them down for you. Yeah, I wish I'd thought to do that. You know how sometimes you get something on your mind, and you just kind of get sidetracked, and you never come back to it. And it yeah, was, it was one of those things. It was like I, I was I, I was passionately wanting to talk to him, and then just kind of I don't know something happened. I got sidetracked, and then when I saw he had passed, I was like, ah. Oh, 
damn it. <laughs> yeah. And he was 88. But there is a good uh, interview with him that uh, somebody posted from it's available via Vimeo where he it's a 20 minute piece but it, he gives an overview of his career and it's it's pretty interesting actually how he got into uh, playwriting yeah and he talks about the importance of doing work that not for the paycheck because he was uh, offered great great santini and they weren't going to be able to uh his his the pay was going to be very minuscule on it, and his agent was telling him, "Don't take that because you need to, you know, uh, you need to to keep doing projects that'll get your pay to a certain level, and you know your 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 salary is going to be so low on this." And he was conflicted, and he uh, gotten I, somebody I forget who it was he talked to, but it was I think it was another famous screenwriter, and they said, "Do you want to do it?" And he's like, "I'd love to more than anything." And they said, "Well, then do it because that's the most important thing, you know." Is doing work that's that that you have a passion for um and the money will come so yeah anyway this is true well <clears throat> anyway the important thing is to love is a 1975 film starring romy schneider uh the it's an italian film and i know i would butcher the original italian title so i'm not even going to go try ahead it. <laughs> go ahead give it a, give it a, give Le it a go say di amara all right that's enough yeah, <laughs> Pretty bad. Anyway, uh, this is a movie that I've always wanted to see because it's referenced in that uh, Z Channel documentary. Which I'd love to see. I remember watching Z Channel documentary years and years ago. I'd love to find another copy of that. You'd think that that as much stuff as that is on YouTube, you'd think that it would be on YouTube somewhere. Yeah, I saw that uh, in 35mm at the New Beverly at a midnight show one night. Oh, Uh, go straight to hell. It was was great. (laughs) It was the only 35 Ran it. They were doing a, a Cassavetes uh, retrospective that month, and I just happened to be there. And on wow. Saturday night, they ran it, and it was, it was great. It was great. It was. I, I was in one of those funky moods where you know sometimes you you've seen so many bad movies, and it's like I don't know. Maybe I'm losing my taste. Maybe I'm losing my passion for movies. And I was just, I was really just in a funky mood, and I, I was staying at a hotel room, not just right up the street, and I walked down the street, and I was thinking I was kind of depressed or down or something, and I went in there and and started watching that and instantly i was like oh my god it's back <laughs> i didn't lose it it was just these crappy movies i've been watching yeah. <laughs> you know seeing all those clips reminded me how how much i love it and uh anyway but that's one of the movies they reference in there is uh the important thing is to love from 1975 and they and that was n- never available until now mm. so um anyway and i'm not really sure what it's about i just know that they talked glowingly of it in the in that film, and so I'm going to have to reach, look out for it, and try to get a copy of it because uh, I want to see it for that simple fact. But yes, I have a copy of the Z Channel documentary. I'll have to. Uh, of course, I'll you do. Take care of you there. You've got how many towers of of movies do you have saved? <laughs> like you, you have the you have the digital files saved in these towers, right? I have them in uh, the di- the digital downloads that I've been sent, or or whatever or things that you know are. Not commercially available that people have sent me, and I have those on uh, just hard drives, hard drives upon hard drives, and so I have all those. And then I have the shelves, which are full of movies. You know, those are the the commercial discs, which there are two tall, super tall shelves that are that are double. I have uh, two. Uh, two line they're lined doubly each shelf is wow. and uh, so I have two of those that are that's the stuff that I've watched and then I have 
another one that has a it's a complete shelf that's full of titles that are steel sealed that I haven't gotten around to. So <laughs> and it's, it's like, completely full. It's like old people and cats. You know, it's like so when it is, it's terrible. When when the when the police or or the ambulance or somebody finds your body fifty years from now, it's just going to be what are they got to wade through all these oceans of Blu-rays to get to your body? <laughs> <laughs> I know I've joked about it many times. I said they'll find me dead underneath a stack of uh, Blu-ray discs. That's what uh, that's what'll happen. So yeah, I, I keep telling myself, I hope I, I hope I live. Uh, for a good long while so I can get to some of these things because, you know, you think you're making some headway and then I look and I'm like, I'm not making any headway. I'm not hurt. And I, and, and the crazy thing is, you know, I, I, I'm lucky enough to get some of the review titles, but then I buy stuff that I don't get sent. Yeah. So <laughs> on top of everything else. So that's crazy. But um, anyway, so Isadora from 1968 is uh, Vanessa Redgrave. Again, we just mentioned her. Uh, in Mary Queen of Scots, this is a Kino Lorber release. That's one. Uh, and First Snow from 2006. And this is starring Guy Pierce and Piper Perabo, J.K. Simmons, and William Fichtner. Fichtner. Um, Rick Fergus. Man, uh, Guy. Guy. Uh, uh, um, what's his name? You just said it. Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce is a great actor. And, uh, you know. He's still working, which is the important mm-hmm. thing, but he, he never quite took off like I thought he might. So, I know. Very yeah. good actor. Especially after Memento. He uh, he did that remake of The Time Machine, which didn't really take – it really didn't do much, I don't think. And then it was kind of downhill from there, unfortunately. Yeah. So, yeah. And he is good. He's, he's very good. Uh, this is um, – I, I don't I, – Missed this when it came out in 2006. It's a thriller about a man whose life is out of control after a psychic tells him his days are numbered, and he becomes obsessed with that knowledge. So anyway, um, good cast there, so I'm going to catch up to that soon, hopefully. Um, yeah, so another Vanessa Redgrave title from Kino. Huh, they, must, they must be on a roll. Morgan um, from Night. 19- from 1966, it's another, like I said, Kino release. Uh, the Sopranos has been issued on Blu-ray in a complete series box set. Wow. It's from HBO Video. I started rewatching uh, that series the other day. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to see it through, but, uh, I mean, uh, you know, what can I say about The Sopranos? It's obviously a great series, but uh, it is one of those that... Uh, I think probably should have ended sooner than it did because there were entire seasons where there was not a single distinctive episode for me, but then, Oh, I totally agree. That's been my complaint about it. Yes. Yeah. But then you always knew that, you know, when the show does have a good episode, it's going to blow you out of the water. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you kept waiting for that. And inevitably that episode would come. Yes. You know, but it was a lot of treading water to get to the, Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, I, I that was my problem with it, too, because uh, I followed it um, and thought it was generally compelling. But then when it got to about the fourth season, I think that's when I started losing a little interest because there were there were entire episodes where just nothing, nothing really of note took transpired. Uh, and, and, and you just got this feeling like, well, they they're contracted to do so many episodes, so they're yeah. going to have to, uh, they got to come up with something. So they're just, you know, I felt that way too. And I remember I would watch it with a close friend of mine every Sunday night 
And uh, there were like months and months where we go, wow, that's okay. Well, we watched another episode of The Sopranos, but that wasn't really all that. And then an episode like the finale of, I forget what season it was, but when uh, he and Carmela uh, have that big fight and mm-hmm. uh, she's going to divorce him, she's had enough. And then she admits to loving Furio. Yeah. And that scene was like, good lord. Like, could you could you expect a more intensely and beautifully acted scene work from any series? And it just felt like a revelation all over again. So the, I mean, David Chase did restore his stride. Uh, yes. You know. Yeah, when it was on, it was great, but uh, there were there were quite a a lot of instances of treading water, as I said. So. Yeah, but um, I don't. I don't think it's. A lot of people say, "Well, it's the greatest television sh- series ever," and yes, it's good. But I don't think I'm going to go that far, uh, just personally. Um, anyway, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, 2019. That's a Criterion release that was very well reviewed. Mm. Uh, made a lot of top ten lists. And, yeah, I need to watch that one. Yeah, I didn't get around to it either. I think there may be a. There may be a, a, a review copy of it lying around here from last fall when they tried to get me to watch it for awards consideration. So yeah, it's uh, on Hulu, and it's on, so is Parasite, mm-hmm. and it's uh, I'm sure it's yeah. on the Criterion Channel too. So I, I need to check that out. Yeah, Murder by Decree, 1979, Kino Lorper release. That one, uh, that's uh, directed by Bob Clark. And yes, we're talking about the same Bob Clark who made A Christmas Story and Porky's and Black Christmas. Uh-huh. So he's kind yeah, of a diverse director. Yeah, he was. He was. He really was. Those are, yeah, you know, he was, a loose, he was a loose cannon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good one. Yes. It's a Sherlock Holmes drawn into the case of Jack the Ripper, who's killing prostitutes, obviously. Uh, has uh, Christopher Plummer, James Mason, Donald Sutherland, Jean-Via Bujold, John Gilgood, and David Hemmings. Mm. So, yeah. James Mason, man. I don't know what it was. I was watching some... I forget what it was. I was watching something on The Verdict the other mm-hmm. day. Maybe it was an interview with Lumet. Oh, no, it was the making of The Verdict. So it was actually interviews with the the principal players as they were shooting the movie. And James Mason's so good in that movie. I mean, everybody talks about Paul Newman, rightfully so, in that movie. But James Mason is great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally agree. Yeah, that is a, uh, is a quite a, quite a stunning late. And I think uh, the, I think the verdict's a very good movie for today because there's two, two things, two, uh, parts of that movie. First of all, when the Catholic diocese, when they offer him a payoff to drop the case, and it's a sizable amount of money, and he's he, he's sitting in front of the archdiocese or whoever, whatever character that is, and he says, I can't do it. If I take this money, I'm lost. So he's essentially confessing to the person who you would normally entrust with that kind of thing. But the person that he's confessing to is the one that's trying to buy him off. And so there's the element of not being able to trust the institutions. The institutions are dirty, are perverted. And then there's a scene later on where Lindsay Cruz is talking about being asked to cover up the paperwork to, sh- to show that, to show that uh, they couldn't have saved her. 
And so she, the, the patient that he represents that died. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I got into nursing to help, you know, and she, she's ashamed. She's like, who are these people that are ordered to protect us? And so that, that movie really says a lot about, uh, the trust, the trust that you should have of the people that you, that are there to take care of things that you should be able to trust. And yet you can't. So you, you have to find the strength in yourself to stand for those values that the representatives of those values don't actually practice. It's a, I think it's a great movie. I mean, beyond just the wonder of being a great underdog story. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it is one of the great movies of the, uh, of the 80s, I would say, for sure. Um, and yeah, rightfully so, uh, because it's, uh, it's still, it's, I'd say it's one of the better, uh, movies in the Sydney Lumet's resume. I mean, and there's quite a few there, but it definitely makes the top. Yeah. And there was this period of time where, I mean, you could tell that Paul Newman enjoyed his career post, uh, verdict because the, because he was such a, you know, and there was always an element of Paul Newman that was, uh, that liked to play the uh, the anti-hero, mm-hmm. uh, which ran counter to how beautiful he looked on screen. You know, he those parts normally wouldn't go to an actor like that. Um, so you could tell he really liked playing the the degenerate loser uh, of the verdict. And then later on, that morphed into he liked playing the old coot in every movie he made. Mm-hmm. And then Nobody's Fool is probably the pinnacle of that kind of subgenre of character for him. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. Yep. Yeah, it kind of it kind of launched a new phase of his career, I would say. Yeah. At that point. Yep. And you look at Nobody's Fool, which I did last week, and you see, uh, you know, Paul Newman and Jessica Tandy, and then you see philip seymour hoffman you know like all these people making this little tiny movie that really is doesn't have much of a plot it's just about existing with these characters in small town america uh you know and it's it's it takes on a very kind of melancholy tone when you see that you know it's kind of movie that isn't made anymore just a movie about people Mm -hmm. and uh that so many of the people in that movie are no longer with us you know yeah, sadly. Yeah, it's hard to believe uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's been gone six years, and just think of uh, the things that we didn't weren't able to get from him. The performances. I just... I regret that they never, and I don't never understand why they don't do this. When you, and I guess it's one of the things that actors feel is so special about the theater is that it's uh, it's ephemeral. You know, you got the one night, you got the shared experience with the, the thousand people out in the audience, and that's how it exists. You know, that's that's what lasts, that impression shared amongst those people. Mm-hmm. But I, even given that, I, I regret that they didn't film his Death of a Salesman performance. I mean, oh, just, yeah. just so we could have that immortalized for generations, you know. Yeah, I agree. That had to have been spectacular. I I regret that I didn't get a chance to see that myself. And people could complain that he was too young for Death of a Salesman, but he actually wasn't. I mean, no. Lee J. Cobb, when he played that role on stage, was 36 years old. <laughs> That's amazing when you think about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, wasn't Dustin Hoffman? He was in his. Uh, he made it in '85. That television version. Yeah. He, uh, gosh, he was probably in his. Uh, he was only about fifty or something. You need an actor closer to the young, uh, the younger Loman, uh, to pull off the, you know, whatever age Willie Loman is, the forty-four, mm-hmm. and then I think he comes back and he's like sixty-six. He's older. So you need yeah. you need an actor that's on that younger end of the spectrum because you can always make up them up you know to to look older. Yep. True. Yeah, he kind of Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of had that he had that look he was he he could go younger or older I think he was had that I don't know it's it's kind of well, hard he, to articulate. He also had the weariness. Yeah, that's what I. That's know, he, he looked like the the weight of the fucking world was on his shoulders. Yeah, in a, lo- in a lot of his best performances, and and maybe in life it was too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah. So, well, we'll move on to the 1988 film Dream Demon, which is a horror film with a quite a cult following. I understand. Uh, it's about this woman who has these terrifying nightmares of a demon that actually materializes in the real world. It's directed by Harley Coakless, and, and it has Gemma Redgrave, Kathleen Wilhelm, Timothy Spall. Um, like I said, this one's been talked about in horror circles for – I've heard it talked about for, for years and years and years. This uh, new Arrow release has two cuts of the film. And I think the director's preferred cut and the theatrical version. Lots of new extras, lots of nice new extras. So uh, there you have it. And another horror, horror release from Arrow, Inferno of Torture, is a 1969 Japanese horror film. Uh, that's, um, like I said, has uh, new extras as well, a lot, quite a few new extras and a new transfer too. And then one other Arrow release was The Mad Fox from 1962. That's another one of their uh, releases. So Arrow has is continuing to pump out their titles, thankfully. Still able to get them out there. Uh, Tokyo Olympiad from 1965 is a Criterion release. They've gone all out with this, new transfer and new extras. And this is the documentary of the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, but it's interesting, this film, if you've never seen it, in that uh, they spend as much time focusing on the the, the uh, spectators and the people that are working the festival as they do on the actual Olympics. It's, it's yeah. kind of interesting, the approach they take to it, but it's considered to be one of the landmark documentary films. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I've been doing a lot of stuff about Woodstock for the Movie Geek series, and uh, Movie Geek Yearbook series, and... Uh, it's interesting how that turned out. Like all of a sudden, five hundred thousand people show up. They're not expecting that kind of crowd, and so the, it's mayhem. Mm-hmm. It's mayhem, and they cons- and they consider the last minute. Look, we need somebody out in the audience. We need to know why these people are showing up here. That's going to be an essential part of this movie potentially. Uh, and it is. It it it, it makes that movie kind of uh, transcend beyond um, a, a series of musical performances. You know, it's about mm-hmm. the, it's about the sense of community and that extraordinary peri- three day period where, you know, it, it, it you think about it, it could have easily been Altamont, but it wasn't. That didn't That's ha- true. That didn't happen. Yep. And then you hear Excellent about Altamont. Point. You know, I I watched this. Uh, I watched a lot of stuff about Altamont the other day, and um, it, it's interesting how 
even when the Grateful Dead showed up, I think they played, or maybe they didn't play, but they showed up, and, and I think Garcia was like, yeah, there's bad vibes here, man. I mean, they knew it right at the start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. It was it was something. It was just in the air. It's hard to really say exactly what it was, but you could you could tell it. It's, oh, that's it. I I, I I rewatched Give Me Shelter, and I was shocked. Oh, yeah. I, uh, which is my favorite documentary, and I was shocked because I saw some extra stuff for Give Me Shelter, and I was shocked that a lot of people uh, thought that, uh, including Pauline Kael, that thought the filmmakers were uh, irresponsible. Mm-hmm. To, to 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 capture what they did and present it to an audience and pr- present it in a way that felt uh, like propaganda for their film, like you know this is you got to see this movie. We captured the real murder and and they thought that Mick Jagger seemed uh, not very upset at all when he was watching the footage of the murder at the end of the movie. Uh, I think he was shell shocked. And I think that that last shot of him in the movie, which is just astounding, that freeze frame of him is just, you know. Oh, yeah. Like a moment in time is what the what the hell? What the hell? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like yeah. a, an inability to understand, like, how, how did that happen? It is pretty shocking. Yeah. And, and their reactions. I mean, I love the technique of the film, you know, how they uh they 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 show their reactions to the footage. You know that's a, just an interesting way yeah. of going about it. I, and look, like they, that. they didn't stage the murder for God's sakes. So the, their no. their movie turned out. I mean, their, their movie was just going to be a concert movie about the Rolling Stones, of which, you know, I think Mick Jagger's really into making movies of the band. Mm-hmm. And I think the rest of the band are like, okay, whatever. Because the, there yeah. there have been a lot of documentaries documentary performance films from them whether it be hal ashby or the mazel brothers or scorsese or and there's a few others yeah yeah there's there's probably i remember uh, leonard malton when he, he uh, the capsule review in his book of uh let's spend the night together the hal ashby documentary he says this is the i think it was like he says something about this is the fourth concert film and the republic will stand if it will be the last yeah it's like enough already we get it but uh, and you know, and you read the stories about let's spend the night together at Ashby, essentially on a hospital gurney. He was so sick, and uh, he but he had compiled this remarkable team of cinematographers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I can't think of it. Uh, the uh, the guy that did um, Deschanel, I think Deschanel was one of them. I think Nestor was Nestor, uh, uh, the the Days of Heaven guy, Almandros. Yeah, was he one of the DPs? I mean, it was just uh, an amazing lineup of DPs he had shooting that movie. And he, I remember uh, them go heavily promoting that on MTV. I was just going to say. Let's spend the night together? Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was – I remember seeing uh, promos heavily on MTV uh, back in the day because we had just gotten cable around that time. Was it an early 80s movie? Yeah, 1982. Oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't even know what time period it was. I thought it was the yeah. late, late 70s. No, 1982. It was in the down, the down career, downward career trajectory for Hal Ashby. So, yeah. 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 I mean, he was, he was like on the skirty. Cut, cut camera two. Cut camera. 
and they they basically wheeled them out of the arena. Yeah. Yeah, it was shot during the uh, the nineteen eighty one tour. Hmm. So um. So maybe yeah. Nest, maybe Nestor wasn't on that. Yeah, I I, I know he had previously worked with Caleb Deschanel on uh, being there. So the cinematography actually is by Caleb Deschanel, you were correct, and Gerard uh, Gerald File, which I'm, I'm not familiar familiar with. But all right, anyway, well, there's only two DPs. There, I'm sure there are like assistant cameras and uh, people of note because I read that biography and there were a lot of people that uh, of note that were shooting that movie. Uh, but certainly, mm-hmm. you know. I know Woodstock had like eight DPs on it. Yeah, yeah, there were quite a few there. Yeah, I would like to. Uh, I'd like to revisit. Let's spend the night together. I know it turned up on cable in the early, like I said, early, early '80s, uh, but I don't think I've seen it since. I would like to. That's kind of a curio in the. Uh, the. You know what else? You know what else? Gerald Fell uh, was the DP on. What's that? What? Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. <laughs> there you go. Wow, these things really tied. Pro- probably did probably did those uh, the two things around the same time. Uh, probably did. You're right. They they were released the same year. Yes, they were. Well, for anybody who's interested, the 23rd season of again we normally don't do television, but I thought it would because it's kind of topical. The 23rd it, it's beneath season us, of really. <laughs> <laughs> Well, South Park has been issued the uh, the twenty third season uh, wow. is out on Blu Ray, and it's getting good reviews. They say it's uh, one of the best seasons in years, and it um, I know it uh, they they have a whole thing going on about the consequences of immigration and getting banned in China and the wonders of the human biome. Those are the secret. Those are some of the the, um, the topics that they cover in this latest season. So anyway. Just wanted to mention The Last Valley Kino has issued that from 1971, starring Michael Caine and Omar Sharif. Again, another score by John Barry for that one. Uh, the Road to Wellville from 1994. Uh, Gore Vinsky, right? Yeah, it's, uh, this is actually Alan Parker directed this. Oh, that's right. Not- that's right. That's right. Yeah. There was the, the, the something to, of wellness was the Gore Vinsky. Yeah, um, God, you got me. A cure for wellness or something, or yeah, I think you, yeah, that's yeah, it was just a couple of years ago. Yes, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wellville is the one about the the guy who the Kellogg guy, I think that the Kellogg cereal or something. <laughs> it was mm. about a guy who went around uh, touting um, has something to do. Yeah, it's the it's uh, about the it says the guest at cereal mogul Dr. John Harvey Kellogg's. Health spa are forced to undergo right. an array of hilariously absurd medical treatments. And Anthony Hopkins plays in. Yeah, that's right. It has the buck teeth. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't get uh, to the reviews were kind of tepid when it came out, so I skipped it. I never. But anyway, Sony has issued it's one of their on-demand titles, uh, pressed on-demand rather. <laughs> Alan Parker has a pretty in-depth website. Huh. Yeah. Each each one of his movies has its own page and his commentary on them. Essentially, it's like a. It seems like a website he built to keep people from uh, requesting an interview with him. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no con- <laughs> there's no contact section on it, so it's like 
If you did contact him for an interview, he'd probably say everything you need to know is on the website. <laughs> He's hitting them off at the pass, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes that's the best way. Um, well, well, the 1985 film Come and See has been issued by Criterion. This is one wow. that has a, a pretty uh, pr- pretty – Pretty good word of mouth on this one. Uh, I have to say it's an 8.4 on IMDb, and everybody that I've talked to said it's a fantastic movie. It's un- I hate to say I, I have not seen it. It's, That's the uh, one that they say is among the best of the Holocaust films, right? Yes, right. It's about the teenager that joins the Soviet resistance, and uh, and then he finds a waking nightmare of unimaginable carnage and cruelty, directed by Ilham Klimov. In uh, 1985, come and see. So yeah, they say that's uh, a pretty powerful. Yeah. Uh, movie. I mean, you hear so, you hear about you know towards the end of the war where where there where the Allied troops are marching uh, into Berlin and uh, to to put it yeah. in, to put it into Hitler's reign and you you hear stories of the troops happening upon these concentration camps which they were unaware of really and just being totally shocked by what they saw like what the hell is going on here and the, yeah. the the image of that kind of reignited their resolve of what they were doing you know yeah i know there were uh there were so many movies covering that subject but there were so many that uh, it's kind of easy for some of them to fall through the cracks i think and i think um Come and See was one of those that, unfortunately for me, for a long time did. Uh, but I'm aware of it now, and I hope to rectify that situation. Uh, Django, original 1966 Django, plus Texas Adios, which I think is uh, a sequel. I think uh, Anyway, Franco Nero is in both of these. It's a narrow release with includes both of these films in a, a steelbook edition. So I uh, wanted to let pe- fans of Django know about that one. Work of the Killer Whale from 1977 has been issued by. Oh yeah, that's Shout Factory has issued that. Isn't and, Charlotte um, Rampling you know, in that movie? I, she is. It's an it's an interesting cast. Richard Harris, Charlotte Rampling, Will Sampson, Wow, Bo Derek, Keenan. Does he Renn play the whale? <laughs> 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 Oh uh, yeah, that's a it's a good cast. I uh, I'm kind of a fan of this movie actually. It, it really it I mean it's not perfect, but it's better than a lot of the Jaws knockoffs. It actually has an environmental message, you know, uh-huh. about uh, man's cruelty to you know sea life and and all that sort of thing. And there and there's a the score by Ennio Morricone is fantastic. Yeah. That's one of my all time favorite scores yeah. by him. It's just haunting um, I, I you know believe it or not just the other day i saw a still of charlotte ramping rampling and orca and she's in this bathing suit not a bathing suit but like the zip up you know diving suit and uh mm-hmm. she's carrying a spear or something i was like what the hell is that and it was from orca i want to see orca. <laughs> i want to see orca i want to see tentacles which that is a score I love. That's by one of those Italian yeah. composers, much like Morricone. And it's just a kooky score. And then I look and I see John Huston's in it. And it's like this. <laughs> I got to see Tentacles. Yeah, I've seen Tentacles. It's uh, I, I don't remember it being too good, actually. But 
uh, you know, as far as Jaws ripoffs go, I think Orca's the better of the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I know Tentacles is a, a notoriously bad movie, but I'd like to see Yeah. It. But, yeah, I, I had actually uh, picked up the Orca Blu-ray that was released by Umbrella several years ago, an Australian label that puts out some of this stuff before it makes its way to America. So I already had the Blu-ray on that, and it's got a commentary by Lee Gambin, our, our friend oh, of the show, wow. who comes on and uh, does stuff with us from time to time. So he uh, he provided the commentary on that one. Uh, on the I think he did the commentary on the original Umbrella release, and then they just ported that over. So and there's um I think there's a new couple new threads on there but but yeah if you're a fan of Orca the Killer Whale it's it's been issued on Blu-ray I, I think it's interesting that this is of the Dino De Laurentiis films this has been has been released on Blu-ray in America but yet King Kong 1976 still hasn't so um, mm. I'm hoping they'll rectify that at some has point. Has King Kong 86 been? Uh... No, no, eighty-eight no, or whatever year that was. The, the one that uh, the King, King Kong lives. lives. Yeah, 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 no, no, no. There was a DVD of that in the uh, the mid two thousands that came out, and it's way out of print. Oh come on, uh, we need to revive yeah. that. That's John Gilly. That's the same director, right? Yes, it is. Not a not a particularly bright spot in his career either. But, wow. <laughs> but, I remember oh, going to the video store. I used to. When I collected all the posters and stuff, and video stores were all the rage, and I knew that they were going to throw them out when they were done with them. And yes. I was like, you know, can I have any kind of movie posters or standees that you want to get rid of? And they had a big-ass standee of King Kong Lives. And uh, I was like, I'll take it, I'll take it. And Because uh, I was so movie crazy, and I couldn't possibly carry that standee on my bicycle. So I had to get my dad to drive me to the video store, we... We crunched it into the back seat, and he was like, "What the living shit are you going to do with the <laughs> with that standee? It was bigger than my room." <laughs> I had a similar one, uh, a similar experience. I got the standee from Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. Oh, I would have loved that. I did. I had it, the one with Leatherface, and for the longest time, I had that up in my bedroom as well. And it would scare the living hell out of people that were that didn't know was in there. They would flip the light on, and, the, and there's Leatherface staring you, you know, in the yeah. face. And that so many of my sister's friends would come to spend the night, and they would be caught unaware. And still to this day, they'll when I'm into them after all these years, they'll say, "Damn, I remember that." Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 standing you had in your bedroom. <laughs> oh, that would have been cool. Back when I was back when I was running movie theaters, that was the thing that I was I mean, I'm not like mechanical minded, so when we had to put together a standee, I just got so confused. I like I could not possibly follow those directions and a lot of them were very complicated to put together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they really were. I had uh I had one for Gremlins 2 that that uh, was never put, never assembled, and I and somebody gave it to me that worked at the video store. I don't even think I ever put it together. I think it's still in a box somewhere. Mm. I've got it maybe in my sister's attic. And then I had, I had one from Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, that, I remember that. Uh, that actually had him. Yeah, had him. It looks like he's in a prison. You know, there's a prison bars and right. everything, and he's behind them. Yeah, I had that one too. So uh, yeah, good times. <laughs> Yes, but I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two is the one I'll be remembered by. So yeah, <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if you could buy some of those things on eBay now. I'm sure you could. Yeah, yeah. I just recently, um, and this was a 
kind of a an impulse buy, I'll admit it. But uh, I have a soft spot in my heart for some of those TV movies that were re- released theatrically in Europe, and the the art, you know the movie posters for when they played in Europe, you know that this you know they're like I said made for television here, but then they got a theatrical release later on. And one of them that I'm a fan of is Griffin and Phoenix with Peter Falk and Jill Clayburgh. Wow. And I, I just think it's such a sweet little movie. And I found a, a debut, an Australian debut of that. When it, when it played in theaters in uh, in Australia, and those are cool. I saw it and I was like, oh, yeah, those yeah. those press kits I, that come with the eight by ten glossies and all that kind of stuff that yes. they used to they really used to uh, rely a lot on those back in the day. I'm looking at eBay right now. They got something. They got a creature from the Black Lagoon tabletop display. It's like nine and a half inches tall. That would be cool to own. But oh, the, yeah. in terms of the full size. Those are quite pricey. There's a full size, I guess, because just shipping alone would be difficult to ship. Mm-hmm. A Tombstone movie theater lobby cardboard standee display, you know, full size, $139. Mm-hmm. Jeez. It's a little much. Yeah. A vintage, yeah. vintage Beverly Hills Cop 2 cardboard cutout standee, $20 bid. Dark Man. Hmm. Huh, I remember that one quite well. Yeah, yeah. That the the Griffin and Phoenix day bill uh, that was thirty bucks with the shipping. The shipping was about twenty bucks, and I think the actual day bill was ten bucks. But it was too late. I would already. I thought, ah, oh well. Man, those those would be neat to. Man, they even got like a a volunteers video store movie counter display standee. The vo- volunteers movie with Tom Hanks and John Candy. Oh yes, those would be so neat to own. Oh yeah, just like idiosyncratic <laughs> stuff, you yeah. know. I mean, I've got weird stuff yeah. around my house because I, I have something I did years ago where I I display pictures of people at the part of the house where they died. So I've got Elvis mm-hmm. in the bathroom, like a framed photo of Elvis. <laughs> That's and then, great. I, then I've got uh, then I've got a thing. <laughs> then I've got a thing of uh, of Mama Cass. <laughs> I've got a framed photo. Of, yes, <laughs> but uh, it's not by my bedside. It's uh, and apparently that whole she choked on a ham sandwich thing isn't correct anyway. I've got it on top of my it's fridge, right. you know, because there's the tie-in. You know, you got to yeah. go to the fridge to get the ham and all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> great, dude. A 1971 Willard five foot tall movie theater lobby standee, four hundred dollars. Jeez, I bet. I bet. I can imagine. That would be fantastic to have, though. Yeah, if you God, could afford that. We gotta that. do that. We gotta put our funds together and buy some of this stuff. <laughs> I would love it. I would love it. Yeah. It, uh, I was feeling guilty about buying that day bill. Like I said, I saw it and I was like, ah, Griffin and Phoenix. I love that little TV movie. Yeah. Because, because you know, those are posters that you that were never issued in America. So that's what makes them. Interesting, you know, when a television film had a theatrical run, it's a, uh, it's a little different. So I'm a sucker for those. Mm. Anyway, I actually have the original poster for The Incredible Hulk when it ran in theaters, and uh, the the uh, the British poster for it, the theatrical. I have that one too. I, wow. I got that one a couple of years ago. So, yep, interesting. Well, anyway, so we'll move on to Laurel and Hardy: The Definitive Restorations. <laughs> This is uh, an MVD visual release. Now they've taken the 
best 35 millimeter sources they could find, and they've restored Stan and Ollie and some new 2K and 4K digital restorations. Uh, it also includes some interesting extras. There's 2,500 rare photos, posters, and studio files, commentaries, film and audio interviews, alternate soundtracks, music tracks, trailers, nine hours of rarities. And then you get Sons of the Desert, The Battle of the Century, Birthmarks, Brats, Hogwild, Come Clean, One Good Turn, Me and My Pal, Helpmates, the Academy Award-winning short, The Music Box, of course, The Chimp, County Hospital Scram, Their First Mistake, The Midnight Patrol, Busy Bodies Way Out West, Toad in a, in a Hole, Twice Two, That's That, and The Tree Test Tube. So there you go. Those are the, uh, the Laurel and Hardy Definitive Restorations four-disc set from MVD Visual. So... A narrow Margin with Gene Hackman and Ann Archer. This is a uh, Kino Lorber release from 1990. It's been issued by them with a new transfer, new extras. And Africa Screams, 1949, Abbott and Costello film, which has been one of the one of the I think it's the only title of theirs that was in the public domain. It was not included with the uh, the Universal Pictures collection release. That came out last fall. It has been restored in the new 4K scan by Classic Flicks. This is a 1949 film. You remember in the 80s when you used to find out all find all these uh, films that had fallen into public domain, and the, right. the VHS tapes would be in the you could get them real cheap. That's just one of those that always turned up. Africa Screams. I remember it was one of the first tapes I bought because it was one of the few I could actually afford. So. Anyway, the 1988 film Patty Hearst, by directed by Paul Schrader. Yeah, yeah, there you I go. I rewatched that last year because it, for a limited time it was on the Criterion Channel. They had yeah. uh, they had like a bunch of Paul Schrader movies on their channel. Mm-hmm. So I rewatched it. It's um, I don't know. There there were elements of it that I was fascinated by. It's one of those misses i think when taken as a whole mm-hmm. but it you know it does hold a, it does hold an interest yeah it does it does it has its assets uh, vinegar syndrome has recently um inked a deal with mgm uh, to get some of the films out of their catalog and this is one of the first releases under their new deal and it has never been issued on blu-ray before yeah so it's the uh, Ving Rhames is uh, in pretty, it. I mean, Ving Rhames he is. plays one of the leads yes. in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of his early ones. Yep. So, Best Friends from 1975. That's another Vinegar Syndrome release. And i got to tell you. Too young. By, by the way, uh, on Patty Hearst, back in the v- beginnings of our show when we did that Paul Schrader tribute, uh, mm-hmm. outside of Jeff Goldblum, the other actors that we were able to get were both from Patty Hearst. Uh, William Forsyth <laughs> and Dana Delaney. Yes. Nice. And I'll never forget, Dana Delaney had this big fan because this was a live show that kept calling into the show and he kept calling under different numbers. And so uh, <laughs> he called near the beginning of the show and he was like, can I talk to Dana Delaney? And I was like, well, she'll be on a little bit later. And then uh, when we were talking to William Forsythe, I get this other number pop on my screen. So I pick it up thinking it's a question for William Forsythe. And I answer the the line, and he's like, 
yes, Dana Wells Delaney, please. <laughs> there was something so creepy that he, he knew her full name. And he, yeah, it was a little odd. That's scary. Wow. Mm, you never know who's lurking about. Mm. Wow. Well, Best Friends from 1975 starring Richard Hatch. This is a Vinegar Syndrome release. Not to be uh, confused with the Levinson movie. No, not at all. Yeah. Not to be be confused with that one at all. No Burt Reynolds on display in this one. Uh, How about Wild Palms, Oliver Stone's miniseries? (laughs) Yeah, which always seemed to me like Oliver Stone, his attempt at a Twin Peaks kind of thing. Yes, very much so. I I checked in for one, the first episode, which I think was two hours. And I couldn't get past it. It's like I remember giving up on it because I was I was such a huge Oliver Stone film, fan in 1993. I mean, if he had directed the phone book, I would have been there for it. And uh, so when I saw he was a producer, I thought, oh boy, I, you know, this has got to be good. And it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. At least not it wasn't for me. So uh, anyway, yeah, but. Nevertheless, Kino Lorber has issued this complete miniseries. It was previously released as a Laserdisc box set, I remember. But anyway, it's all on one disc, I think, in this uh, new collection. So they missed it by one year, but there is an anniversary edition of Hair being issued by Olive Films. And they've done a really good job. You know, Hair has been really... uh, uh, they've not done a good job representing it on home video. It's It's been out in bare bones editions on DVD and Blu-ray previously. And I always thought it was a movie that was uh, deserving of the special edition treatment. And thankfully they have uh, corrected that with mm. audio commentary by the assistant director, Michael Hausman and actor Treat Williams. The tribe remembers with actors Beverly D'Angelo, Tom Dacus, Ellen Foley, Annie Golden, John Savage, and Dorsey Wright. You haven't lived until you hear Gilbert Gottfried sing Age of Aquarius to Treat Williams. Ah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yes. Making chance work, a choreographing hair with chore- choreographer Twyla Tharp, cutting hair with editors Lindsay Klingman and Stanley. Oh, well, Martin. that's cute. Cutting hair, like a segment with the editors. That's cute. Yes. How about hairstyle with production designer Stuart Wurzel? Wow. And uh, James Mangold actually contributes here with a featurette called Artist Teacher Mentor, Remembering Milos Foreman. And you have an essay by critic Sheila O'Malley. That's a pretty solid special edition, I would say. So Olive Films has issued this, and they've done a really commendable job, I think. And then there's a segment about its first 14 years of existence. It's called pubic hair. It's uh... (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Didn't see that one on there, but maybe it's uh, listed on the inside. So, yeah. So the nineteen. Uh, they had this see. massive rap party for hair, and uh, they had cameras in there, and so it was this massive kind of gala thing. And that segment's called Hairball. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm here all night. That's good. That's good. So uh, I think I mentioned these the last time. 
that we were on, but uh, I just want to mention them just in case. I think they came out in late May, and I had not received review copies until after we did the last show. But in case I missed them, The Reluctant Debutante with Rex Harrison and Kay Kendall, uh, Sunday in New York with Cliff Robertson, Jane Fonda, and Rod Taylor, Robert Culp, Joe Morrow, and Jim Backus, and Selena. Although all three of those, uh, of course, Selena with J-Lo, Jennifer Lopez. What's the first movie? Uh, that was uh, the reluctant debutante okay. with Rex Harrison and Kay Kendall, and um, these three titles were Warner Archive releases. That I'm not sure if I mentioned them, but the um, the Selena Blu-ray is interesting because it has an extended cut. Really, which is um, more longer. Yep, uh, by six more minutes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, just wanted to make sure that people. People knew about those. The Orlando Bloom film Haven has been reissued. This was, I believe, from 2002, and uh, I think he was actually a producer on this as well. It's um, a thriller that also stars um, Frank E. Flowers, Orlando Bloom, of course, I mentioned, and Joy Bryant, Bobby Cannavale. So anyway, Anthony Mackie and Bill Paxton are also in this, and Zoe Saldana. Um, so anyway, uh, Frankie Flowers is the director. Sorry about that. Uh, that's what I meant to say. So uh, Haven from 2002, and I wanted to mention what she said. And you and I have talked about this off the air. Uh, the Art of Pauline Kale, mm-hmm. a film by Rob Garver, which is a documentary on obviously the life of Pauline Kale. The the DVD is contains the film, but it's interesting to note. I wanted to make sure that people knew there are some extras on here that make it worth picking up, especially. Uh, an audio interview with Alfred Hitchcock that she conducted in 1974 that has never been heard publicly before. So uh, that's pretty pretty interesting. And there's some deleted scenes with Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino, uh, talking about her and his first exposure to Pauline Kael. And that's interesting. So uh, the movie itself is good, but also the uh, the extras are good as well. So... I would recommend what she said, The Art of Pauline Kale. Yeah, I really like that movie. Yes. For anybody who cares seriously about film criticism, I, I would say it's definitely worth seeing. Uh, scenes from the from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills from 1989, directed by Paul Bartel, starring Jacqueline Bissett. Uh, that has been issued by Kino, as well as Ten Little Indians from 1989. Huh. And not for publication with David Naughton and Karen – I mean, sorry, Nancy Allen, um, 1984, not for publication. That's a Kino Lorber release. And let's see. I think we're getting to the end, actually, of our releases that have been released uh, in the month of – June. I'm not seeing. I believe that just about covers it, actually, for the month of June. So quite a diverse array of titles there. Wow. Okay. We shall close on a piece of film score from Orca. <laughs> there we go. That's uh, that would be my recommendation. You couldn't have picked a better one. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we got June all wrapped up. And then, uh, and then, uh, if you're listening to this when it's just posted, uh, the second episode of Movie Geek Yearbook will post July 1st. And then we're doing a kind of a director series. You might have noticed 
the films of this person and this person, and we got a couple more of those, including uh, Robert Altman and Martin Ritt and uh, Ridley Scott. Uh, so, you know, we got some good stuff coming up this uh, July. 